Well, good evening to each of you, dear people, and welcome to another evening of looking into God's Word together. And I want to thank you so much for just the way that you are blessing me this week. It's, it's been a, a real joy to fellowship with y'all, uh, to, to worship with y'all, to get into a number of your homes, to get to know some of you better. And so thank you for your, your kindness, for your hospitality. And thank you, too, for your graciousness in uh, letting me go home and enjoy our spring program and, and then bring my family back for the weekend. Thank you for, for being willing to um, work that out. It means a lot to me and my family. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 2 for a text this evening. The book of Hebrews is, is a beautiful book. It's one of my books in the Bible. And I would like for us to look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 uh, for a text this evening. Now, as you're going there, let's think here a bit about the context of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to believers at a very strategic time in history. The temple was still standing. Sacrifices were still being offered. But in just a few years, both the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be completely destroyed. The Jewish nation would be scattered, including Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And so these times were politically unstable times. These were changing times. And in the midst of all this change and all this disruption, many believers were tempted to abandon their new faith and to slip back into the old traditions of worship. The old familiarity, you know, of the old rules and regulations. You know, <laughs> this was really an upset the church basket time. It really was. I mean, can, can you imagine for a moment how that must have been? So how the, the, quote, the church scene would have been for these people and all the rules and regulations that they went through, all the sacrifices and offerings, the killing of animals and sacrificing in the blood and all of the things they had to do. And now they are in this new dispensation, this dispensation of of faith in Jesus Christ and faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and so much of the doing was done away with and can you imagine how church changed? Can you imagine? I think sometimes we, we just in our minds were like, well, they need to just get on to this. Like, why is it such a big deal? But put yourself in their shoes a little bit. It wasn't as easy, perhaps, as we would think it to be. And so the book of Hebrews targets these believers. You know, you could kind of think about it this way. You know how it is sometimes with our, our little children when there's a big change. Perhaps we moved to a new house. Perhaps little Johnny had been, had been you know, fixed from sucking his thumb. He got over that. But then we moved to a new house. Life has changed, and lo and behold, little Johnny starts sucking his thumb again. Or little Susie just needs her blankie and nookie. You know, it's, they want to slip back into those old practices, back to what was familiar, back to what was being comfortable. And we sort of have that picture here 
with the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. I say the book of Hebrews targets these believers. And one of the messages that we find here in Hebrews is, in these changing times, don't put your trust in the things that will pass away, but put your trust in the unchanging truth that's found in God's Word. In these unsettling times, you can be secure even though everything around you is falling apart. Why? Because, Hebrews 6.19, we have a hope which is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Hebrews 12.28, we have a kingdom which cannot be moved. Dear people, let me just say that the church is living in similar circumstances today. These are unstable times. These are changing times. Truly, the times are a-changing these days. And we believe that these are the last days. And delusion and deception are rampant. The things that used to be so clear seem to now be matters of confusion. Things that the Anabaptist church, generally speaking, used to be so together on. Now it's, it's up for debate. Now it's confusing. It seems we're, we're splitting up over things that we used to be unified about. And we're confused. So what is the truth? What is right? Jesus said that in the last days the love of many will grow cold. And yet... There is hope because he said that he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. The same shall be saved. And I truly believe that those who endure to the end will be those who have lived their lives in unswerving obedience to the truth. Unswerving obedience to the word of God. You know, in a day when many people are believing all kinds of strange ideas, all kinds of strange teachings. It's never been more important to be grounded, to be settled in the enduring truth of God's Word. The Word of the Lord endures forever. The Word of the Lord doesn't change. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. How shall we escape, is the question, if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, I want us to note the significance of the word therefore. And I'm reminded of Brother Eli Slayball. When I was younger, he used to travel down to Ebenezer every once in a while and preach there. I always enjoyed that. And I remember him saying, whenever we see a therefore, we need to go back and say more. Okay? Well, here's one of those situations. It's pointing back to the beginning of chapter 1. 
And I'd just like to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so the verse here says that he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Okay, the Hebrews writer here is saying that that's a change. And he says in verse 1 that God used to reveal his word through the prophets. God would reveal his message to the prophets, and the prophets then would speak to the people in many and various ways. But that's how God chose to speak his word to the people, through the prophets. But he's saying, in these last days, it's different. God has chosen to reveal himself, to speak to us through his very own son. Through his very own son. And now, dear people, this isn't just any old son, but this son is the heir of all things. This is the one and only son, the son of God. This son is the creator of the universe. This son is the exact representation of the father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. This son is the upholder. What does it say here? He upholds all things by the words of his power. Wow. In Colossians, we read that by him all things are held together. And I think of Psalm 33, where we read that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. <laughs> he is the upholder. He holds all things together. This son is the savior. This son is the conqueror. You see? And so the thrust here in chapter 2 is God has spoken unto us in these last days by His very own Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need, to pay, we need to pay careful attention to the things that He has said so we do not drift away. The title this evening is The Danger of Drifting. The danger of drifting. Drift has been defined as a gradual move away from a set position. So there is a set position, but to drift is to gradually move away from the anchor, from the pillar, from the set position. By means of illustration, ships loose from their moorings drift in and out with the tides. Airplanes may drift off course due to side winds. Vehicles <laughs> that are not either parked with the brake <laughs> may drift. People sometimes drift aimlessly from one place to another, from one job to another. Drift signifies random purposeless movement. There's, there's no intentionality. There's no purpose there. 
There's just random carelessness. And in some cases, it's harmless, but in others, quite tragic. In fact, severe damage or even death can happen due to drift. For example, serious accidents occur and even fatal accidents occur when, when a car may drift across the center line into oncoming traffic. Let me just say that drift can be, can be kept in check. Drift can be prevented by taking precautionary measures, but effort is always necessary. Think about that. Effort is always necessary. It requires purposeful action. I want you to know that there is a form of drift that is far more dangerous than in the material world, than in the physical world, and that is spiritual drift, dear people. Spiritual drift. And while the same principles apply, the end result is far more consequential because people's eternal souls are at stake. Spiritual drift is also a gradual moving away from a set position, perhaps either in, in practice or in doctrine, but it's a moving away from truth. We probably all know of someone who has wandered away, drifted away spiritually. And maybe even as I say this, uh, a face comes to mind. You think of someone. There was a lack of urgency. There was a lack of zeal. There was a lack of following hard after. There was a casual approach to life that resulted in not a standing still but a moving away, slowly moving away. And that is the point, dear people, that we must remember. There is no standing still in this life. There is no neutral position in this life. It has been said that the life of this world is not a lake, but it is a river that is flowing downward to destruction. And we, when we fail to daily, hourly, fix our eyes on Jesus, when we fail to keep Him in our focus, we do not simply stand still, but we drift away from Christ. We go backwards. You know, in a river, it's the dead things that float down current. It's the dead things that just simply go with the flow. The things that are alive had the strength to hold their ground. In, th in fact, the things that are alive had the strength to swim against the current, to go upstream. You know, verse 1 of our text says that spiritual drift happens when we fail to give earnest heed to God's Word. It sounds like the person in James chapter 1, does it not? The person who hears the Word, but then they pray what they heard and they just go their own merry way. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightly forgets what manner of man he was. There is no intentional effort put forth to retain that, to remember it, to put it to practice. It's a picture of complacency. It's a picture of indifference, of carelessness. Not taking care to avoid danger, to avoid harm. You know, 
People never choose, as it were, they never plan to drift in their spiritual lives. People never go into a Christian life and say, you know, I'm going to walk with the Lord for three years, and then after three years, I'm just going to put it in neutral, and I'm just going to coast. And, and after a little while, then I'm just going to kind of walk away from God. No, people never plan to do that. But because they do not intentionally work at maintaining their relationship with God, by default, they wander away. <laughs> you know how it is as parents when one of the children does something they shouldn't have done and they said, but I didn't try to do that. And what do we say? I know, but you didn't try not to do that. You need to try not to do that. <laughs> and the same is true as we think about this matter of drifting. People drift in their spiritual life when they do not take care to avoid danger or harm. You know, there's another similar word to complacency, indifference, carelessness, and that is the word negligence. And we find a form of that word here in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now notice he doesn't say reject. <laughs> no, it's not rejecting. I mean, we wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't reject a great salvation. I mean, this was written to professing believers, right? But he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The Greek word here, neglect, is amaleo, which means to be careless, to not care. I find it interesting that this same word is found in Matthew 22. It's the story where we read, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son and then sent his servants out to invite many to this banquet. But the scripture says they would not come. They would not come. In fact, it says they made light of the invitation. That's the word, amaleo. They made light, to make light of. One to his business and another to his farm. They made light of it. They paid no attention to it. Amaleo, to be careless, not to care. And dear people, the same is happening too often today. Where the call is being going out to come to the wedding banquet, as it were. The invitation of Jesus Christ is, is still going out. Come, come to me. Experience rest. Experience peace. Experience freedom, joy. And there are too many today. The call is going out saying, be a part of the kingdom of God. I, I would like you to serve. Maybe on the mission field. The Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door and saying, Will you serve in this way? Will you be a servant in this way? And there's too many people yet today that are making light of that. Amaleo, are paying no attention to it. And instead of hearing the voice of God and answering the call to service and minding the Holy Spirit, they're going back to their farm. They're going back to their business. 
Listen to what Albert Barnes had to say about this thing. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He says, it is not merely if we commit great sins, not if we are murderers, adulterers, thieves, infidels, atheists, scoffers. It is if we merely neglect this salvation, if we do not embrace it, if we suffer it to pass unimproved. Neglect is enough to ruin a man. A man who is in business need not commit forgery or robbery to ruin himself. He has only to neglect his business, and his ruin is certain. A man who is lying on a bed of sickness need not cut his throat to destroy himself. He has only to neglect the means of restoration, and he will be ruined. A man floating in a boat above Niagara Falls need not move an oar or make an effort to destroy himself. He has only to neglect using the oar at the proper time, and he will certainly be carried over the falls. Now listen to what he says here. Most of the calamities of life are caused by simple neglect. By neglect of education, children grow up in ignorance. By neglect, a farm grows up to weeds and briars. By neglect, a house goes to decay. By neglect of sowing, a man will have no harvest. By neglect of reaping, the harvest would rot in the fields. No worldly interest can prosper where there is neglect. And why, why may it not be so in religion? There is nothing in earthly affairs that is valuable that will not be ruined if it is not attended to. And why may it not be so with the concerns of the soul? Let no one think, therefore, that because he is not a drunkard or an adulterer or a murderer, that therefore he will be saved. Such a thought would be as irrational as it would be for a man to think that because he is not a murderer, his farm will produce a harvest. Or that because he is not an adulterer, therefore his merchandise will simply take care of itself. Salvation would be worth nothing if it costs no effort. And there will be no salvation where no effort is put forth. Wow. Neglect. Dear people, I want you to catch tonight that our salvation is a great salvation. Think for a moment how great it is compared to the salvation, once again, that the Jews experienced in the Old Dispensation. I referenced that a bit earlier. Think of how great our salvation is today. Our salvation is a great salvation because it has a great author. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain or the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. <laughs> I say our salvation is a great salvation because it has a great author. It says that he, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. Our salvation is a great salvation because it saves us from great sins. Once again, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, When he had by himself purged our sins. He purged our sins. Think about how that compares to in the Old Testament where there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the covering of sins. And he by himself purged our sins. 
clean them, wipe them out, erase them through the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. Our salvation is a great salvation because it saves us from great danger. You see, dear people, hell is what we deserve. Heaven is what we receive. Once again, chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, listen to this, that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you see that? That without Jesus Christ, before Jesus Christ, mankind was, was subject to this fear of death. You see, there is a penalty for sin, and that is death. And the natural man fears death. Why? Because it is the end. Because it is, it is the penalty for their sin. Because along with that death comes the judgment. And there is fear. Without Christ, there is a fear. And yet Jesus Christ came and through His death and resurrection defeated the devil, defeated the power of death. And now those who stand redeemed, those who believe in His work of salvation, can now have the hope of heaven. They're not afraid to die. Revelation 12, verse 11, And they overcame him, speaking of the devil, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto the death. They're not afraid to die. Part of the victory over the devil is that we as believers are not afraid to die because Jesus has conquered death. And so if you're not afraid to die, the devil has no grip on your life. Praise God for that. I say it's a great salvation because it saves us from great danger. Our salvation is so great, and yet, dear people, so many people are neglecting it today. So many people are passing it by. So many people are stiff-arming, throwing elbows, as it were, at the loving invitation of Jesus Christ to come and experience new life and peace and joy. So many people stay busy with other things. They're busy with their businesses. They're busy with their hobbies. They're busy keeping their yards and gardens and everything just in tip-top shape. They're even so busy with church work sometimes that they neglect what is the greater importance, and that is of cultivating a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. While all these other things are getting great care and attention, their spiritual life is on low. You know... It burdens my heart tonight that there are so many people in our pews, in our pews, that are so highly disciplined and so skilled in the things of this world, in their businesses, in their hobbies, and yet completely undisciplined in the things that really matter and so unskilled in handling the Word of God. They cannot rightly divide the Word of truth. 
Oh, they may know how to shoot the biggest buck. They may know how to make the prettiest mini storage shed. They may know how to quilt the nicest quilt. They may know how all the ins and outs of a business and, and have the greatest farm and most milk production and all that. But don't ask them to have devotions at church. Don't ask them to have a topic. Don't ask them to lead in prayer. I don't know how to do that. God help us. Verse 3. If the word spoken by angels, this is verse 2 actually, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every trans received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Implying that we shall not escape if we fail to live in obedience to the truth of God's word and instead live a life of spiritual negligence. The Hebrews writer goes on to write in verses 3 and 4 that we have no excuse, people. We have no excuse. It says that this word was first spoken by the Lord and then confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And then God also bore witness both with signs and wonders and miracles. And then if that's not enough, he gave his Holy Spirit. How shall we escape if we neglect what is so obvious, what is so great, what is so real? And so the cry to each of us tonight is, don't reject or neglect this great salvation, but instead put forth daily diligent effort to maintain a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day when spiritual drift just seems to be commonplace around us. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be very discouraging at times. When I look around me and I see friends, I see churches, I see groups of people that at one time held such a, a faithful stand for God's word and for truth and for what was right. And now are sliding away from that. Truths that have been believed and positions that have been held to for years seem to be now in question. And the devil, who is the father of lies, seems like he's working overtime these days to cause many to fall for his deceptive tricks. And yet, spiritual drift is not inevitable. No, it's not. We must and we can fight against it. And the Bible gives clear direction for not only fighting this battle, but winning it. And I want to look yet this evening at four keys to guarding against drift in our lives. Four keys to guarding against drift. The first is to be sure of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Be sure of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 11. And we're going to notice a theme here in the Apostle Paul's life. He makes a statement. That is a theme in his life. We see it throughout his writings. 
Verse 11, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, here we go, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed. I say that was a theme that we have running through his life. A fearless man, a bold man, a man who was certain of his salvation. He was certain of his relationship with Jesus Christ. He said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Too many people today are ashamed of their relationship with Jesus Christ because they are not certain of it. They're not certain of it. Note the assurance of position with Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul had. I mean, it's no wonder he lived his life with such confidence. What does he say? He says, I know. I am persuaded. I have committed. It's words that ring with certainty. It's words that speak of personal conviction. How could he be sure? How could he hold to the end? How could he be so confident? Verse 14, dear people, we find the strength to keep. We find the strength to hold fast through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the one that guides us into all truth by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Be sure of our relationship with Jesus Christ. I say it's a key to guarding against drift in your life. Secondly then, be firmly grounded and settled in the truths of God's Word. Be firmly grounded and settled in the truths of God's Word. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. In verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Our people today are consuming more Christian content than ever before. Whether it's through podcasts, recordings, YouTube videos, through this. Our people are consuming more Christian content today than ever before. But it is not leading to greater clarity and conviction. Instead, it is leading to increased confusion. I'm burdened about that this evening. The Apostle Paul says that we are to continue in the faith, 
grounded and settled and not moved away from what? The hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. There's people who are spending maybe 10 or 15 minutes in the Word each day, maybe, and then another two or three hours listening to the stuff out there, listening to people that they don't even know speak about the Word, or listen to other things about just matters of life. And then they wonder why they're confused. Then they wonder why they can't understand things that seem to be so basic. Excuse me. Continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. People generally move in the direction of their focus. Where is your focus? What are you feeding on? What is your anchor? Where are you spending the most time? in what you, what you soak in, what you digest. As I look at what the Apostle Paul said there in verse 23, dear people, that is true spiritual stability that will empower you to go against the flow of mainstream influence. And there certainly is a lot of mainstream influence out there today. I just want to challenge you to be a person of conviction one who daily reads and studies the Bible and then orders your life in obedience to that. Put away your other books. Stop Googling it. And take your Bible and the Holy Spirit in yourself and study it out. Read it. Ponder it. Discipline yourself to study the Bible and develop conviction for what it says. And then Sharpen that conviction with your brothers and sisters that you worship with. We live in the day of the cut and paste mentality. You know what I mean by that? The cut and paste mentality. We live in the day of instant sermons, instant Sunday school lessons, instant Sunday evening topics. It's so easy to go to Google or another search engine and say, okay, so I'm supposed to speak about love. Okay, love. Sermons on love. Enter. Okay. There's an outline that I might could use. Great. Copy and paste that over to mine. Now I can teach. Now I'm ready to preach. Dear people, the cut and paste mentality and Google is making for some lifeless Sunday evening topics, for some lifeless Sunday morning sermons. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit, you won't find it in Google. You find the power of the Holy Spirit through the spiritual discipline of, of reading and praying and pondering, fasting over the Word of God. And it is through that personal investment that the light of Jesus Christ floods your mind, the Holy Spirit empowers you, and then you can teach and preach. I'm convinced that if we make truth the foundation for our lives, we will then have the ability to discern the right and the wrong and the, the little nitty-gritty in the other details of life. 
When truth is the focus, when truth is the foundation, you take truth away, you put something else in front of that, you consume more content than the truth, you will have a hard time discerning what is right and wrong in the finer details of life. Things begin to get fuzzy. Be firmly grounded and settled in the truth of God's word. Number three, another key to guarding against drift is be committed to the local body of believers. Be committed to the local body of believers. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to jump in here at verse 14. Someone has said that lone rangers are dead rangers. <laughs> now, I don't know what the original context of that, of that statement was. I really don't know. I read it in a book that spoke of the importance of brotherhood accountability, specifically regarding Internet. <laughs> and the, the, the statement was made, lone rangers are dead rangers. I think there's some real spiritual significance to that. And I, I think of that when I think about the power and the blessing of the local body of believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Uh, by the way, that is a picture of our world today. 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. <laughs> you know, as I look at these verses, it reminds me, of a greenhouse. The Apostle Paul here paints a beautiful picture of what God intended the church to be. And what comes to my mind is a greenhouse. Think for a moment about a greenhouse. You know how a greenhouse is, is a warm place, a place of protection, a place of shelter, a place of nourishment. It's a place where little seeds are planted in good fertile soil. And where there's a gardener there that daily tends them and waters them and makes sure the temperature is right. And, and as the, it gives a, a wonderful atmosphere for those little seeds to sprout and those little plants to grow. And they grow and they're nurtured, they're cared for, and, and they grow and grow. And they become beautiful plants and beautiful flowers and roses. And it's gorgeous. Greenhouses are gorgeous. But the ultimate purpose is not for the flowers just to stay in the greenhouse. No, the purpose is then for those flowers to be spread around the community and to bring life and beauty and joy to the community. And I say the church is very much like that, like a greenhouse, where it's a place of warmth, a place 
of shelter, protection, nourishment. There's fertile soil here. There's, there's regular uh, care given by spiritual leaders through the Word of God. It's a place where little lives are, are started and developed and, and people come to know Jesus Christ and, and they grow and they're watered and fed. And, but the, the, the ultimate purpose of the church is not just simply to beautify these walls. It's not just simply to have a nice group of people in here. No, the ultimate purpose of the church is to go out and beautify the community around, bring life, bring joy, bring beauty. You see, there's a grander, greater purpose than just within these walls. I want you to notice the contrast that we find here. There's one picture in verse 14. There's a contrasting picture in verse 16. And in the middle of that is something extremely foundational, and that is the word truth. Truth. Truth must be the center. Truth is actually what makes the difference. So verse 14, we have a picture of instability. We have a picture of drifting. We have a picture of people who are gullible. Oh, they hear this. Oh, that sounds good. They believe that. And then they hear this. And then they hear another preacher say this. And then they hear this. And they're kind of just being tossed to and fro. And they're quick to believe all the latest, newest thing in some greatest revelation that some preacher had on the Word. It's a picture of instability. It's a lack of commitment. It's a lack of conviction. And Paul refers to them as children. Little children. They're not mature. And how does that verse end? It ends with the word deceive. It's a picture of deception. They think they have something, but they don't. They think they're on the truth, but they're not. And then notice verse 16, which is that contrasting, beautiful verse. It's a picture of a stable, well-oiled machine. It's a picture of working together. It's a picture of a group where each part matters. Everyone matters. From the janitor to the preacher to the one who cleans the toilets to the, you name it. Every part is important. We work together. And it's a beautiful picture of life. And that verse ends with love. Love. And once again, what is central? What is the difference what makes this group of people, what makes this picture different from the group in 14? It's truth. This is a group of people who are grounded in truth. They're committed to a body of believers. There's life there. There's sincere love there. There's a spirit of togetherness there. There's a desire to see each member grow in Christ-likeness. You know, as we think about this importance of being committed to a local body of believers, there's another aspect of this commitment, and that is, as believers band together in common faith and agreement, there develops a mutual obligation for accountability. In other words, we see the importance and the necessity of each other. In other words, I really need you in my life. And in fact, you need me 
We see that. We don't see our various gifts. We don't see our various talents as, as something to be scared of or something to, to think critically of. We shouldn't be defensive, but instead we look at each other as all an important part of the body of Christ. And I need your part to make me a better person and to build the kingdom of God. And you need mine. And as we all appreciate one another and see that we need one another, we're accountable to, to one another, there builds a bond of unity and blessing and power there. There is safety. There's truly safety in that group of believers. Perhaps you've been holding out a bit on true commitment to the local body of believers. Let me just challenge you, dear people. There is safety and blessing in being committed to a local body of believers. Lastly, then, we're talking about guarding against drift, and the last key for this evening is be diligent in our faith. Be diligent in our faith. General Douglas MacArthur said once, it is fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. It's fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. You know, the same is true in our spiritual lives as well. We fight drift with diligence. And it is true that our natural bent is downward. Our natural bent is away from established truth, away from established practice, as it were. Therefore, constant diligence is absolutely necessary to stay on course, to keep the faith. You see, there is no such thing as cruise control in our spiritual lives. But we fight drift with continued purposeful action. Turn yet to Jude, to the book of Jude. In verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now move to verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves. Or, he says, these are those who bring division. They're sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Do you see this example of the diligence 
that's needed to combat drift. Do you see what Jude is saying here? It's been said that the Christian life is a life of holy energy. And we clearly see this in what Jude is writing. I want you to notice the continued purposeful action that is required. Jude says that there is a building up. There is a praying. There is a keeping. There is a looking. There is a loving. There is a saving. There's a pulling. There's even a hating within its proper context. A hating of sin. All of those have to do with continued purposeful action. It's something that we continue to do, we strive for, we make it a way of life. I say it's a matter of diligence. But dear people, we can do all of these things till we're blue in the face. But if they are not flowing out of a a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if they are not flowing out of a vibrant walk with him, then what have we done? Our labors are in vain. You see, Jude goes on to say where the power truly comes from. It doesn't come from within us. It's not something that I can just whip into shape. It's not that at all. But he says, verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. We truly find the power and the strength to endure through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the power. That's where it's at. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus asked the question, When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? And I believe he will. I believe he will. Perhaps the more pertinent question this evening is this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in my life? Will he find faith in your life? May we be found faithful. Let's pray.